Well, we are, as I said, in uh, the fourth week on a series of prayer, prayer. My name is Steve Marshman, and I want to tell you about when I was a little kid in Illinois. Eighth grade, about 13 years old, and I found myself on a little league team because it was kind of big and played a little bit of ball, and I liked it. And the little team, league team did better and better and better. And before I knew, we were going to the state championship, which is a big deal when you're 13, right? And we traveled on a bus down to this place, and this is the 70s. You could do the math. Uh, so uh, what, what happened what doesn't happen anymore. Before the beginning of the game, the coach prayed because that happened back then in the 70s. The coach prayed, and we're in our dugout, and the, team was, the other team was in the other dugout, and our coach prayed, and one of the things he prayed was that he would have, we'd have victory. And we listened to that, and that was cool, and we finished praying. And I'm not a Christian yet, by the way. I'm just a 13-year-old kid that went to a church. But as we finished the prayer about victory, I looked over to the other dugout, and they were still praying, which was cool. And they finished. And I had this thought that entered my mind. What if they were praying for victory too? I mean, this could be a problem. And you th- as a kid, I go, what is God to do? Is he in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, no. I hate it when they do that. They both prayed for victory. What are we going to do? You know, you have these visions of how God is going to figure this out. And that began a journey in my life about thinking about prayer and how God handles our requests. And fast forward to my adult life, and I started figuring out that there is a real life tension that we have between God's plan for us and our free will choices. And tonight we want to talk about what happens when God's plan and my free will choices collide and there's some kind of a conflict between those two things and there's a real tension here and we ask ourselves in the midst of that tension, how do we pray? How does that affect how I pray? I'm going to ask you just a bunch of questions here for a few seconds to get you thinking about all these things that happen in our life. Maybe you're here tonight and you're single. The question would be, does God have one specific spouse picked out for you? And you've got to go figure out who that is. Or do you have a choice in that matter? Is it a free will choice? Or maybe you're called to remain single. I think God still does that today to some people. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're married and you're asking God's plan for your life and how many kids you should have. Maybe it's two, maybe it's six, maybe it's eight, maybe it's 12. At some point I got to stop because I'm getting a lot of trouble from my wife. Uh, But does he let you decide how many kids you want to have or is that part of your plan? Or maybe you're supposed to adopt or maybe you're supposed to remain childless. These are all these questions that we all have. Or maybe you're here and you're you're younger, you're in high school, you're in college. Uh, Maybe you want to go to a different university or graduate school and, and you have to make this decision. And you're asking God, you have a place for me to go. Do you have a path for me? Or... Even more difficult, what about when bad things happen? You lost your job. You found out you have cancer. You're being bullied at school. Is this part of God's plan? What about the horrific events in Roseburg where a a gunman goes into a, a community college and mows down a bunch of people? Is that part of God's plan? I mean, these are the questions. These are real life questions that we have. And tonight we want to talk about one of life's major questions, which is how specific is God's plan? Is everything included? Is every event and every choice part of God's plan? Or 
Is my will and my free choices involved in there somehow? What did Jesus mean when he said to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Now, this topic is what scholars and theologians call providence. Providence. And it's not a word we use very much anymore. So I want to throw a simple definition up on the screen for you. And providence is as simply as it can be put is this. How God works out his plan for all creation. How God works out his plan for all creation. Now, this is a fairly difficult topic, so we can't go through all of it tonight, but we could scratch the surface. And for those of you that are signed up for the theology series, we're going to cover this in even more depth. Three weeks, October 25th, noon in the kids area. If you're not signed up and you want to do that, sign up so that we can have a sandwich there for you. Otherwise, you'll be really hungry because everybody else will be eating in front of you. Um, So specifically today, we want to tackle that question, how God works out his plan in creation in context of how do we pray? And I want to just answer the question right up front since it's hard. And I'm going to tell you this. When we talk about providence and prayer, the answer is God responds to our prayers. God absolutely responds to our prayers. Over the last three weeks, Jose specifically and repeatedly told us that prayer is an invitation to a relationship. And tonight we're going to find out a beautiful part of that relationship is that God responds. See, because God listens to his kids, just like good parents listen to their kids. And God responds to his kids. Now, sometimes the kids don't like the responses, right? If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes a good parent has to discipline the kids and they don't like what they hear. And sometimes we need to be disciplined by God and we don't like what we hear. But nevertheless, God responds. So we're going to look at some different passages in scriptures in the ways he responds in the context of providence. And to make this a little bit easier, I hope... I'm going to move through these passages with three different scenarios. And they're going to come up on the screen here. Scenario one is bad circumstances in your life that are due to sin. Bad circumstances due to sin. And the second scenario is bad circumstances that you get involved in that are not because of sin. So bad circumstances not involving sin. And after I get you all depressed... Uh, then we'll talk about good circumstances. Does that sound good? Okay, let's start. And as we go through all these scriptures, uh, normally I would have you turn to them and we'd unpack all the scriptures or I'd put them on the screen. Uh, tonight, feel free to not go to the scriptures and just listen because I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. They're mostly familiar stories. Uh, they're not going to be on the screen. But if you want to go there, uh, fine. The first story is in Exodus 32. Exodus 32. And you know this story. The context is Moses is up on Mount Sinai. And he just finished talking to God. He just finished getting the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And what's going on down below in the valley? The Israelites are sinning big time. So this is our first example of a bad circumstance due to sin. The Israelites had taken all their gold, their jewelry. They'd melted down. They'd fashioned a calf out of it. And they're worshiping uh, this calf, uh, which is a God other than Yahweh, which makes God pretty upset. So we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32, 
verse 7. And the story finishes up like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. That's an understatement. I mean, they are really sinning big time. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. That means they're stubborn and they're obstinate. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Now, what kind of anger is that? Is it he just got a little bit upset of them or is it white, hot, burning wrath of God? That's what it is. Listen to what he says. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. He's going to wipe them all out. Then I will make you, into a great, you Moses, into a great no, a nation. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and listen to this prayer request. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give you your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Now check out God's response, verse 14. Then the Lord relented and he did not bring uh, on his people the disaster he had threatened. Quite a story. God is like ripping hot mad. And he should be because here's a couple of things we need to remind ourselves about God in the context of prayer and providence. He is God, the creator, and we are the creation. The creator has certain rights. If any of you are into any kind of creative arts, whether you make something out of any kind of craft, material, wood, whatever, if you create it, if you paint a picture and you don't like it, you have the right to destroy it and start over. I dabble in a little bit of woodworking and every once in a while I'll make something and I don't like it. It becomes firewood, you know. I, I destroy it because I'm the creator. I can do that. God is the creator, and he has rights over his creation. God, as the creator, does not have to give account to anyone. He doesn't owe us an answer. And another thing about God, the creator, when he acts, no one can stop him. When God wants to do something, no one can stop him. However... God responds to our prayers. Now, we need to notice in Moses' prayer and ask ourselves a question. It's a pretty elegant, elegant prayer. But does Moses give God some new information? Is God in heaven saying, Moses, I forgot about that promise. Thank you for reminding me. You're right. I did say that. So I'm not going to wipe him out. No, that's not, what's, that's not what's going on at all. Moses is just praying a fervent prayer of God. This is what I knew about you. And God has the decision whether or not he wants to relent or not. And in this case, God changes his mind, relents. Some of your Bibles do say change his mind. If you have a New American Standard, New Living Translation, it actually says change his mind. The Hebrew word there is naham, and it literally means to change. And God changed his mind and he relented. This happens in other places in the Bible. This isn't unique to this story. If you're a note taker, write down Jonah 3, 
Go read the story about how God relented from uh, wiping out the Ninevites because of prayer. Prayer changes the outcome of events. Now we have to ask ourselves, was the golden calf part of God's plan? I would say no. God didn't want them to sin that in that way. It wasn't part of God's plan. Was wiping out the nation of Israel in the valley, not all of them, but the people in the valley doing the sin, was wiping them out part of God's plan? I would say yes, because that's what he told Moses. I don't want to read anything into the scripture, but no matter what his plan was, because of the prayer, he changed. Prayer changed the outcome. Now, you're probably thinking ahead a little bit, go, wow, if that prayer has that much power, can we just manipulate God? And the obvious answer to that is no. We can't manipulate God with our prayers, but we can pray to God and ask him to relent. And sometimes he does, but nevertheless, he will respond. So let's look at another story that has a different ending. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you want to turn there. But again, you don't have to, because this is a familiar story as well. As well. David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba and David obviously committed a sexual sin. David was an adulterer. Sometimes we forget, though, because Bathsheba gets so much focus that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, was killed by David. He was set up to be killed, and David's responsible for that. If David was in our culture today, he'd be spending life in prison. Uh, So David sinned big time. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 13 and see how David's prayer is responded to by God. Verse 13. And by the way, this is a little warning. This is not a happy story, right? Okay, this this is not one of those passages of scripture you put on a poster in your house because this is sad stuff. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. So the Lord forgave David of his sin. You're not going to die. Verse 14, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba, had born to David and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. And then the sad part of the story in verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. So how did God respond to this prayer? He responded and he said, no. Little bit different story than with Moses and the Israelites, but Make no mistake, God responded. The prayer was a true, earnest prayer. David had repented. It seems like God had forgiven him, but but God said there's going to be consequences to this sin. And in this case, God did not relent. Because remember, God, the creator, does not have to do what we ask, but often he does. Our role is to pray and then submit. Now, a side note for those of you who are worrying about the baby, because you're like, this is a real bad deal for the baby. We know from other parts of Scripture that's a general character of God that God, t- God takes care of the baby, right? Don't even begin to think that the baby spends eternity in hell tormented. No, I believe as soon as that baby died, God picked up that baby and took care of the baby in some way, but we don't really see what happens 
with the baby, we just know the character of God, even though uh, this is a really, really sad ending. So let's move on to the second scenario, bad circumstances not involving sin. And I just depressed all of you. And by the way, you all look really depressed right now. Your faces are down and they probably should be because that's a sad story, but it's in the scriptures. It's part of the story of God. But let's get a happier story about a baby and turn to 1 Samuel. So back to the left in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And this is a beautiful story of Hannah who would give birth to Samuel. And Samuel is this very huge, important prophet in the Old Testament. He would speak for the Lord in big ways. He would anoint Saul as the king. He was a transitional leader between the judges and the kings. And uh, I'm not going to read verse 5, but I want to point out verse 5 to set up the situation of the story. It says in, first, in verse 5 of 1 Samuel that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, if you read the whole story, we don't know why. We do not know why the Lord closed Hannah's womb, but he did. And we just have to accept that for what it is. Now, let's continue up the story in verse 10, uh, where uh, we find out what Hannah's doing about this. She's praying in verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, If you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Uh, In the interest of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 19 to see how the story ends. Early the next morning, they, which is Hannah and her husband, arose and worshiped before the Lord and they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah, which is Hannah's husband, made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And then verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Once again, we see the Lord responding to the prayer. The question I have is, was Hannah's pregnancy part of God's original plan, or did Hannah's prayer change the outcome? And I think there's some evidence that's pretty clear to me that the prayer, once again, changed the outcome. We see in verse 20 that Hannah thinks so, because what does she say? She says, because I asked the Lord for him, because I asked for the Lord him for him, I got pregnant. Some of your Bibles have a footnote next to the name Samuel, and it says in my footnote, Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard by God. God heard Hannah's prayers. If that's not enough to convince you, skip down to verse 27 in the dedication ceremony for the boy. Hannah says, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked for. There's no doubt in my mind that Hannah believes because of her fervent, true prayers to God Almighty, that's why she got pregnant. Because prayer actually does change the outcome of things. Remember when Jose said last week, I believe, or maybe two weeks ago, ask, seek, knock, and just audaciously keep going after persistent, ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock. That's what we see in Hannah's life. And the answer was really good, really good. She got pregnant and she had Samuel and Samuel was, he was an amazing guy and you could read all about him. If you want to read a really neat prayer, by the way, go read Hannah's prayer in chapter two of first Samuel. 
and you will be blessed. But once again, we can't manipulate God with our prayers. So they don't always end like this. Sometimes bad circumstances are for our own good. The classic example of that is the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about. And that story is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And let me just read that little piece of the story for you. This is a bad circumstance for Paul. He's got a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. There's all sorts of conjecture, but we don't know. They're guesses. But we know it's bugging him pretty bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll pick it up halfway through verse 7. This is Paul speaking. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And here's how God responds. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. We're getting a clue how hard Paul's life was, by the way. In the last part of the verse, for when I am weak, I am strong. God responded to Paul's prayer in a very, very profound way. You are going to get to keep this thorn in your flesh, and I leave it there to help you. So whether the circumstances are bad because of sin or not sin, God responds. And these are just a couple examples of story in the scriptures. But because it's Sunday night and it's a beautiful day, and somebody told me it's Taco Day, National Taco Day. Is that true? Or is it Taco Tuesday, National Taco Day? I don't know. But tacos are good. I recommend eating them tonight if you're hungry. I love Taco Bell tacos. I don't know why. They're probably not that good for me, but I love them. But we're going to move on to good circumstances. Really good circumstances. How do we pray when we're in a good circumstance? What are some examples of good circumstances that you might have to pray for? Well, maybe you're looking for a job and you get two job offers at the same time. Two job offers at the same time and you've got to decide which one am I going to take. Uh, maybe you're applying for colleges and you get accepted to two or three colleges at the same time. And you have to decide which one am I going to go to. If you're like me, and I think some of you are, we can get tripped up sometimes thinking that God has a secret right choice for my life. And if I don't pick the right one, I'm kind of toast. I'm going to miss God's blessing. I'll be out of God's will and things won't be as good as if I pick the one he wanted me to, to pick. So I live in this state of anxiety trying to figure out what's God's will for my life. And we get all wrapped around the axle, so to speak. When we're praying about these life decisions like that, that are generally in some kind of good circumstance, this is when our view of providence gets really interesting and really helpful. In essence, there's two very broad orthodox positions. And I'm going to put them on the screen for you. The first one is that God determines all. The second one is God determines some, but not all. Let me give you a little bit of help of what I mean by that, and we'll talk about these. Because this, this is where this gets a little difficult, but I want you to understand this because this will absolutely change how you pray. The first position, God determines all, is that God has a perfect plan for your life. Where you'll go to school, who to marry, where to live, what job to take, whether or not you should be a vegan, 
God has predetermined everything. He's got a perfect plan for your life. Everything that happens is, in, is included in God's plan. There are no random events. Some people are in this camp. If you're in that camp, that's great. Uh, our church is not. Uh, but if you're in that camp, come, welcome here, worship with us. It's sometimes fairly easy to figure out who's in this camp. Uh, my daughter, who's actually in, in the front row tonight, when we dropped her off at Wheaton like six years ago now, I think, uh, there was a, a lunch for the incoming parents. Uh, all the students were off doing orientation. There was a lunch for the, for the parents. And I was studying this deeply at the time. And I remember the guy's prayers. He got up to say lunch, which is kind of random. But I remember him saying, thank you, God, for bringing us all to this place. From the beginning of time, you ordained and decreed that we would all be here. It's part of your plan for all of our children to be in this school and for us to gather together and pray for them. And I remember thinking, this guy's in camp one for sure, because he believes that everybody was there as preordained by God from the beginning of the time. If you're in this camp, you believe the reason you're here tonight is because God decreed it. God determined it. And it really actually wasn't uh, specifically your choice, although it was your choice. Now, camp two, position two, is a little bit different. That says that God determines some, but not all. God has a perfect plan for his creation that includes partnering with you and me, and he gives us free will choices in our daily life decisions. Many things happen that are not determined by God. Like the shooting in Roseburg, we would say that is absolutely not part of God's plan. That actually makes him angry, and he didn't want it to happen. A.W. Tozer explained this uh, position in, part, in, in number two here with something he called the ship theory. Now, my lovely wife, Vicki, is in the front row, and I got in trouble this morning because I said that she gets seasick and doesn't uh, like to go on cruises. Well, uh, we've never been on a cruise because she gets seasick. I don't really want to go on a cruise because I don't want to sit in a little room with a little round window I mean, that, so I'm actually happy that she doesn't want to go on a cruise. So I apologize for that, honey. Uh, but if you were to go on a cruise from Portland to Anchorage, Alaska, the analogy that A.W. Tozer gives us is that God is the captain of the ship. It's going to part tomorrow morning. It's going to uh, go to Alaska. And there's nothing you could do to change that. God determines that. He determines when it departs. He determines the path. He determines the destination. Nothing you could do to change that. However, so I'm told, within the limits of the cruise ship, you have a whole bunch of choices. You could decide to eat five meals a day. And you could decide to eat nothing but desserts. So I'm told. You could decide to go play shuffleboard. I understand some of these boats have swimming pools on it which I just think is interesting because the boat's in the middle of the ocean and then you put a pool on it. But you could have all these different choices and whatever you want to do, you can go do it. That explains this position. If that analogy doesn't help you because you've never been on a cruise ship like me, uh, I came up with my own one, which is a little different. Um, My younger brother is six foot four and my older brother is six foot three and I'm five foot eight. I did ask my, my mom when I was little if I was adopted because we had these family pictures with these two giants that I'm standing between. But the point of the illustration is that God determined 
that I'm going to be five foot eight. There's absolutely nothing I could do about it. Maybe hang from those suspension boot things for a while. Maybe I'll get a little bit taller. But basically, I'm five foot eight. Nothing I can do about it. However, I have some choices about how much I weigh in my five foot eight body. I could be 170. I could be 180. I could be 190. I'm not going to keep going, by the way. Uh, but that's my choice, right? But there's limits within my body. I can't get down to 100. I wouldn't be here if I was 100, right? I would have wasted it away. There is limits. And that's what this view says. Now, I want you to know that after, you know, lots of prayer studying, the staff here, the elders here, we fall in position two. We fall in position two that God determines some events, but not all events. Let me give you one more illustration. If we were announced that there's a prayer meeting this Wednesday night, and we're only going to pray for one thing, and that is that Jesus would not come back. We're going to have a prayer meeting and we're going to pray fervently. Ask, seek, knock. Jesus, don't come back. Don't come back. Would you come? I kind of hope not. You got better things to do. That's not going to change, right? God has determined through all of scriptures, Jesus is coming back. There's absolutely nothing we could do about that. That outcome is not going to change. But what if we said there's a prayer meeting this Wednesday night? And as a church, we're going to pray for one thing. And we're going to pray for many, many people in the sunset corridor to be saved. I hope all of you would show up for that. Because God will respond to that prayer. And that prayer will actually change the events of things. See, the, re- the reality is that if we really, truly believe that prayer changes the outcome of events, we would pray more. Another example, there's baptisms tonight. I believe it's the Lord's will for you to be baptized since you've been saved. If you were baptized in an infant or baptized before you were saved or not baptized at all, God's will for you is to be baptized tonight. That's his will. But he doesn't predetermine it. He leaves that choice up to you. So tonight, if you haven't been baptized, that's a good thing to do. Now, I want to move off this topic a little bit and tell you what I actually think is even a bigger deal than this. Because we've been primarily talking about events in your life and things that, get, gets, that, get, that you plan uh, and things that happen What I believe, if I look at scriptures and I look at all the prayers in scriptures, which is a good exercise to do, by the way, just every time you read through the scripture, take notice of the prayers and scriptures. I think you'll find the same thing I found, and that's this. God is more concerned with our heart and our character than with the events of our daily life. God is more concerned with our heart and our character than the events of daily life. We're going to walk through those scriptures uh, they're on a screen in just a second, but let me illustrate it one more time with baptism. Yes, God wants you to go through the event of baptism, but I think he cares more about your heart attitude, why you're getting baptized than the actual event. Now, not to say that the event's not important. The event is very, very important. However, does God want us just to go through the motions to just get up there and do it and don't even think about it. No, God cares about our heart, about our attitude. He wants us to live the disciplined life of following Jesus. This is to say it doesn't matter so much if you work at Nike or Intel. It's what kind of a character and what kind of a person are you when you're working at Nike or Intel. 
There's no question that God's plan for your life is to be holy, full of the Spirit, and transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you're thinking about getting married, that's an important life event. But what God's truly, truly concerned about is what kind of a godly spouse are you going to be? Your character within the marriage, in God's eyes, is absolutely critical to your marriage and to the point where that's what the scriptures focus on. So our prayers should be centered about, uh, around being more like Jesus, not just what we do. You know, guys particularly are obsessed with this. And you know, if you put two guys together for more than about 15 minutes, they're going to ask one another, what do you do for a living? I think if Jesus was in that conversation, he would quickly move past the what do you do to who are you as a person? What's your character? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your spouse? Are you an encourager? How are you doing with sexual temptation? These are the things that Jesus cares about even more than events, but not just uh, he doesn't, it is not that he doesn't care about events. He cares about character and events, but I just think he cares about the character even more. One more illustration from my past life when I'm, uh, I had two business partners. We owned a business downtown, and the business was doing pretty well. And I had a friend who was a believer in the same invest, type of investment business. He happened to be in the same building. And he came down uh, to my office and said, I got a question for you. I said, shoot, fire away. And he says, do you ask God to bless your business? And without thinking, I just blurted out, yes, absolutely, like every day. And he looked at me kind of strange, and he goes, that sounds kind of greedy. And I go, oh, no, you don't don't understand. When we ask God for blessing on our business, we're asking God to bless the character of our business, that we're honest business people, that we don't cheat, that we treat our clients well, that we act with integrity. This might have been a good prayer for the Volkswagen, you know? I mean, talk about blowing it big time. Oh my goodness, it's hard to believe how a corporation that big could mastermind that many lives for so long. But that's what God cares about. Does he care more about how many cars Volkswagen sells or the character of the people in the business? Does he care if you work at Volkswagen or Ford or does he care if you were the person working there that you would say something? That's what he cares about. Let's take a brief look at these scriptures to to illustrate uh, what I'm saying. Starting with Ephesians uh, five, Ephesians chapter five, and we're going to go through these pretty quickly. We're not going to unpack them line by line, but some of these are just so crystal clear, particularly this passage, Ephesians five, starting in, in verse 15. I really like it when Paul writes clearly and simply, and this is one of those occasions. Uh, Ephesians five fifteen, Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. You don't need a Greek degree to understand that, right? That's just clear. Don't be dumb. Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. When we pray and we wait for God to respond, we have to realize and be realist that we do live in an evil world. The shooting in Roseburg uh, is evidence of that. Obviously, it's horrific. I mean, it makes us sick to our stomach to think about what the families are going through down there. But you know what? As bad as that occurrence is, 
We're numb to the other stuff. My brother is a Portland police officer, and he told me this weekend in Portland, there was five shootings, five gang shootings. They barely hit the news because they've become commonplace. We live in an evil, evil age. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. These four passages we're going to talk about all talk about the Lord's will. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, which means to be controlled by the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us if we want to understand what the will of the Lord is, be wise. Don't be foolish. Be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Give thanks. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. I was preparing this message last night, and my daughter, who's in in the front row, is the only one in our family that could actually sing on key. Uh, And she's really good, really good. But I read this, and I said, Jamie, that's my daughter, Jamie. the, The passage says, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. I feel like singing. And she looks and says, no, Dad, Dad, the passage says, sing to the Lord, not to your daughter. You'll you'll annoy me. (laughs) So (laughs) Romans chapter 12. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Another uh, familiar kind of famous passage about the Lord's will. Verse uh, verse 1 of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then watch this. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect Will Here in Romans, we're told that if you want to know what God's will is and that test it and approve it, to, that you should worship God through a sacrificial life. And many of you are doing that here. You're serving and sacrificing. We're told to not conform to this world. This world is somewhat evil. Have you noticed? We're not to conform to that. We're supposed to be different. If, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus... We need to look and act differently. And we need to transform our minds so that we could live like Christ. Uh, the next passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This one's also really straightforward. And this is again about God's will. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 starts out, It is God will that. Well, that's going to be pretty simple, right? It is God will that. Well, what is it? It's God will that. That you should be sanctified. That means that we should be holy and set apart for Jesus' good work. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. So here we find out that if we want to, know, if we want to do God's will, we need to be Holy, we need to be sanctified, we need to be set apart, we need to avoid sexual immorality, and we need to control our own body. Since we're in 1 Thessalonians, let's just go to the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 16. Another famous verse or two, which says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Here we find out that God's will for us is to rejoice always. That should make us look different. 
Because we live in a world of people that are constantly uh, complaining, whining, and not content. And we do that sometimes too. But we shouldn't do that. We should be the ones that are rejoicing. We should be the ones that are inexplicably, is that a word? Yeah, inexplicably content because of Jesus. And it says pray continuously. Now, I don't know about you, but I was taught to pray with my eyes closed. And you put praying with your eyes closed with pray continuously. And that sounds like we're going to have some massive accidents on the highway. So maybe this passage is telling us to pray with our eyes open. I don't think so. I think this passage is saying pray continuously. But we have to ask ourselves, what does that even mean? I think it's easier to say what it's not. Let me ask you questions that I don't want you to answer. When was the last time you prayed? Was it this morning? Awesome. Was it midweek last week? Okay. Was it all the way back to last Sunday when we prayed in church? Okay, that's okay too. Maybe you can't remember when the last time you prayed was. The answer to that question, when was the last time you prayed, truly prayed, you doing business with God the Father, is the answer to the question, are you praying continuously? One pastor put it this way, we're supposed to live the life of a constant conscious communion with the Father. That doesn't mean we close our eyes, bow our head, and put our hands together and pray 24-7. We, can't, we couldn't live life. But we should be constantly praying, regularly praying. And the more, the better. And give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. When you're in a bad circumstance, you found, find, just found out you got cancer. You don't say, God, thank you for the cancer. This is going to be awesome. I've been looking forward to chemotherapy. That's just weird, right? It says, give thanks in all circumstances. So when you get the bad news, the bad situation, the bad circumstance, you find something to give thanks for. It will be there. So how do we wrap all this up into one conclusion? I think tonight, each of us, has a choice of how to live in the light of the fact that God has a plan and we have real life choices. And I'm going to give you basically two choices of how to live. The first one on the screen is anxiety. You could live in anxiety. We do it. I do it. You do it sometimes. And when you're living in the context of providence and prayer and anxiety, what you're thinking is, I don't know what to do. I can't figure out God's will for my life. It's such a popular question these days. And if you're asking that question, it's a legitimate question, but I would tell you to maybe shift how you're asking it. Because if you're asking it in this way, you're just going to be anxious. I've never gotten an email from God telling me what to do. So how do we live? I think the answer is joyous pursuit. Joyous pursuit of God through prayer. I know the, types of, uh, the type of person God wants me to be. He wants me to be full of the Spirit, and he wants me to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's what God wants for me. That's his will for my life. So in this joyous pursuit, we pray. We pray individually, and we pray as a community. And as we pray, we remember that prayer is an invitation to a relationship. Prayer is an invitation to become more like Christ and God responds to our prayer. He absolutely does. I've given you just a few examples of his response tonight in the scriptures. I give you a few examples of what the Lord's will is for our life. And there's more. This book will answer the question for you. It absolutely will. But the answer is God responds. So I'm going to ask Brandon to come up. 
And we're going to spend about two or three minutes in prayer, not group prayer, so don't freak out. I know some of you freak out about that. But just you alone with God for about two or three minutes. And to help you figure out what to pray for, uh, I'm going to ask you some questions to prompt you. You can close your Bibles, put those away, um, and let's just think about what to pray for. In what way can you become more like Christ? Let's step through those three scenarios. Perhaps you're in a bad circumstance due to sin. Well, we know what to do. It's time to repent of your sin and ask God's forgiveness. Go to the person who you've sinned against and ask them for forgiveness. God will absolutely respond to that prayer. I promise you he will respond to that prayer because I know that that's God's will for your life in this situation. And if God's calling a person or an event to your mind, pray about that in just a second. Secondly, maybe uh, you're in a bad circumstance not due to sin. You have a tough situation at work that you didn't cause, your sin didn't cause. Maybe you have trouble raising kids, you have trouble at school. If that's your situation tonight, it's time to pray like Hannah. Pray like Paul, ask, seek, knock. Submit to the Lord in response to this prayer. He will respond. The response may not be what you want, but he will respond. So ask him and ask him again and again over the next days and weeks. Or perhaps you're in a good circumstance right now. Everything's going pretty well. But maybe you have a choice to make. Well, first rejoice. Rejoice that you're in a good circumstance. Maybe life is pretty close to normal. You could still ask God, what in what ways can I be more Christ-like this next week, this next month? In what ways is the Holy Spirit prompting you to be more like Jesus, more like Christ? Pray for that. God will absolutely respond. Maybe he's asked, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit's telling you, you need to be just a, be a more joyous person this week, this year. Maybe the Holy Spirit's telling you, you need to be more thankful. Maybe the Holy Spirit's telling you to be more encouraging. The list goes on and on and on. I can't, I'm not going to speak for the Holy Spirit, obviously, but pray and ask 